Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, today, we are going to be breaking down and just kind of bullshitting and talking about, I'll offer my picks for the uh, UFC 285 card coming up this weekend. We'll cover the main card, uh, but there are some fucking great fights on the prelims, too. I mean, this entire card is stacked. There's a lot of really interesting matchups and shit going on. So we're going to take a look at the main card. But like I said, man, on the prelims, you've got uh, fucking Cody Garbrandt taking on Trevin Jones. That's a great fight. Derek Brunson versus Driscus Duplessis. Right? I just saw something that Duplessis was complaining because he's not on the main card and Bo Nickel is and all this stuff. But what can you do? The fucking hype machine always wins those things, right? It's just how it goes. You know, Chris Curtis was upset too because he got bumped down. Uh, for Raul Rosas Jr., right? That like 17 or 18 year, I don't know if he's 18 yet, but the youngest kid they've ever signed in UFC history, right? He has a spot on a main card and Curtis was pissed, but it's like, man, that's the way it goes. And here's the thing though, like Duplessis Brunson is the co-feature on the prelim card. Garbrandt versus Jones is the featured prelim. So it's not a terrible spot for Duplessis. Like I understand his perspective. He just beat Till and stuff, but man, people are excited about Bo Nickel and you've, He's probably also, just being realistic, we'll break the fight down in a little more detail, but he's probably going to run through Pickett, man. Like, just being honest, he's probably going to go out there, beat Pickett up, and it's probably a matchup where he's going to really get to display his skills, and the UFC knows that. Like, this fight is probably going to put him on notice more so than it already is to the general public, right? Because John Jones coming back, they're going to be just like fight fans who don't buy every fight card that do buy this card, right? So it's a great idea for them to put Nickel in, uh, in front of eyes like that and really start to build his star power if you think he has the potential to become what everybody thinks he can become, which is middleweight champion, right? So I like the move from a business perspective. I mean, I know Duplessis is like a little butthurt about it and maybe rightfully so in terms of if you want to consider the amount the like his body of work in MMA is much larger he's done much more he's much more proven he's beaten more skilled and more talented opponents he's 100% right but Cody Garbrandt is a former you know world champion and he's fighting on the prelims under Bo Nickel too so, I mean, Cody Garbrandt is still an exciting fight. Like, that's a great prelim. But anyway, back to the Chris Curtis thing. Like, Curtis got bumped to the featured prelim. And I think it was Mike Bond. I, th- I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. For, with MMA Junkie, you made the point. And I think he's right. Like, there's a really good argument that unless you're getting pay-per-view points, you don't care if you're on that card and get bumped to the featured prelim spot. Because odds are more people are going to tune in uh, to that featured prelim than they would the first fight on the main card, right? With Nickel, it's a little bit different because I think his star power and like the fact that this is John Jones fighting, like this is, and his move to heavyweight, like the whole story there, people are probably going to tune him for the whole card and they want that anticipation. But you know, with somebody like Chris Curtis, I can see them looking at that matchup against Kelvin Gastelum and just like, in terms of the rest of the main card, a lot of people might miss it. But they're probably not going to miss the featured prelim, you know what I mean, if they're watching it for free on ESPN. You know, there's probably that transition period between when people like, you know, start watching the one that they have to pay for. You know, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. I just think they get more eyes in a, in a featured prelim spot because ESPN is free and a ton of people are going to tune into it. It'll probably be playing at bars, you know, bars that don't buy the pay-per-view for ESPN are going to be airing just regular ESPN on TV. So there's a good chance for people in a bar to see that fight. Like, whereas a lot of people, you know, 
it's just going to get way more eyeballs. So it's not necessarily a bad spot for Chris Curtis. I can understand where Duplessis is coming from. Like I said, he's on a real streak right now. He's like tearing through the rankings at 185. I can understand why he's upset, but like I said, just the reality. Anyway, though, moving on down the lineup, you got Viviana Araujao fighting Amanda Hebos, Mark Andre Barriot taking on Julian Marquez. That's a great fight. Ian Gary is on the early prelims on ESPN Plus. He's taking on Song Kanan, Jessica Panay versus Tabitha Ricci, Mana Martinez versus Cameron Simon. Not familiar with these last two. Farid Basharat and Damon Blackshear as well. So, I mean, a great card. And the main card is fucking stacked, obviously, right? And that's what we're going to be breaking down today. Um, Let's see. I wanted to take a couple minutes and talk about a couple other things before we get into it. Don't worry if you guys want to skip this. There will be timestamps. So you can jump, like, straight to the fight predictions and the breakdowns, right? But uh, the Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury fight over the weekend. First, Jake Paul can box. I don't want to start making it seem like he that I feel like he can't that I don't feel like he's legitimate but what we saw on Sunday in my opinion was him getting outclassed like I know that it was a split decision and that he dropped Tommy Fury with the jab and everything in the last round all that but it really felt to me like Fury was just putting work on him had way more volume, was a little bit more skillful with his combinations, whereas Jake was telegraphing things a little bit more, you know, loading up a little bit more on his shots and missing bigger than Fury was. Fury seemed to be hitting him just much more consistently. I'm not a boxing pro by any means. I'm not an MMA pro either. I'm just a fucking fan. I know more about MMA, right? But boxing, like, I just felt like, watching it, I just felt like Tommy dotted him up. Like, he just touched him way more. And uh, he hit him with some nice shots too. And But here's the thing. Here's, here was my main takeaway from all this, right? Tommy Fury, while he is undefeated, right? At the time of the fights with all of his previous opponents, their combined record was something astounding like 24, 176, and 5 or something insane like that, right? Meaning 24 wins, 176 losses, and like 5 draws or some Like, I can't remember exactly. It's something... I might be off with the numbers, but it's something along those lines. Something entirely outrageous. The quality of opponents that Tommy Fury has has faced is almost laughable. And this is what I started thinking about with this run that Jake Paul's been having in boxing. And again, it might not go this way. I could be wrong. I'm not wishing ill on the kid. I'm just looking at the landscape of what's going on. And this is how I see it playing out. If Jake Paul wants to take boxing seriously and rise to a level where he is a world champion, right? It's going to be a very, very hard gap to close. But if he wants to do so, I think it's going to be hard, first off, just stating this, for Jake Paul to even close the gap between mid-grade professionals, right? I don't think Tommy Fury is a mid-grade professional. I think he's a low-end professional, right? Again, based on the strength of schedule, there's no other... That's the only argument you can make. We've never seen him tested. And Jake Paul is not exactly a seasoned boxing veteran. He's had some fights against retired MMA fighters. And age matters. Like, I know Silva can box, but he's not a boxer. And he's, what, 40-some years old? Like, come on. Anyway, though, my point is just that it's going to be hard for Jake Paul to close the gap between himself and mid-tier professionals, let alone world champions. And if he does ever want to become a world champion, it's going to mean fighting a long list of guys that nobody knows and that he won't be getting any attention for, right? So 
it, he the path to that there's going to be a lot of fights where he's fighting names that people really don't care about on the way there. The only other option and the only way that we stay alive on this ride, like the only way the ride keeps going is if Jake Paul continues, if people keep signing contracts to fight Jake Paul rather that are retired MMA fighters, people with recognizable names that he can beat or celebrities, right? These, it's the only way this continues. My point is just that he is going to start running out of opponents that people care about very, very quickly. How much do you really care about seeing, like, I know people say they want to see Nate Diaz, but after seeing what I just saw on Sunday, a rematch between Jake and Tommy Fury, sure, I'm interested, right? Like, I would watch that again. I think, I'm not saying it wasn't an entertaining fight. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that this ride, I think, is going to come to an end because after this, what do you do? Like, do you box Nate Diaz? Do you want to see that? I honestly don't even want to see it. You know what happens when a young guy who's training strictly in a sport for a long... We saw it against Silva. We saw it against Woodley. We saw it against, against Askren. You know what's going to happen. Like, I think Jake is going to go out and win the fight just because of his ability to, like, march people down and be stronger and the bigger person and be able to dictate the footwork with his power and stuff. Like, I know Nate can box... And maybe, maybe I'm way off. Like he, he, Nate is probably a much more talented boxer than like Woodley. Silva, I don't know, arguable. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just saying like Nate maybe beats him up, right? Like, but I just wonder how long this dream can stay alive. Like how long can it go for? I mean, it's incredible what they've done. I think it's amazing. I think that it actually has probably had an overall positive effect on boxing. And I also think that Jake has probably had an important role in getting the talk about fighter pay going and just the beef with Dana White. I don't care whose side you're on, but anything that gets the conversation going is good in my opinion. The more people talk about it, the more good ideas win, realizations come through, and hopefully something comes in place where contracts become public like they are in the NFL and people fight for better terms for the fighters, right? Um, I don't know. I think good could come out of that. And I think it's been overall good for the sport. It's been fun to watch. It's been entertaining. But I do think that it comes to an end soon. And I think that, you know, there's just, like I said, when do you start losing interest in the matchups, you know? And now that Jake's lost, especially if he loses to Tommy in a rematch, now the ride's really over. Who are you really interested in seeing him fight after that? That's just my take on it. And I think the path for him to continue is very difficult. I think it's just going to fizzle out. But anyway, I just wanted to talk about that. I thought it was a good fight. I thought it was fun. I thought Fury won. I thought Jake looked good. I thought he did some things right. But, you know, I don't know how long it'll last. Anyway, let there was something else I think I wanted to talk about too. Let me scroll through like the news shit here. Let's see. I can't remember. It'll probably come to me when we're talking about it when we're, or when I'm talking about the matchups and shit. But anyway, let's move on. So let's start breaking this main card down now. We have, starting things off, as mentioned earlier, Bo Nickel versus Jamie Pickett. Uh, Bo Nickel, undefeated right now, 3-0, and right? Two knockouts, one submission, I, le- I believe, just uh, debuted on the Contender Series. Was originally supposed to fight Pickett on a card earlier. I forget which one, but it got postponed, I think, I think Nickel maybe got injured. And uh, anyway, they're fighting this weekend now. And Nickel is a massive, massive favorite in this fight. And 
honestly, if you look at like Jamie Pickett and the things that he does well and the things that, you know, uh, he struggles with, I think the, the odds are probably correct on this one. Nickel has ways to put you away on the feet. He's proven that already. Like, he has pretty sharp hands. He's able to threaten there. He's not afraid to throw with big shots and take some risk. But he also uses that power to level change underneath, right? Like we saw in the Contender Series. So, man, I think that Nickel is just going to come out and dominate Pickett in the grappling department. Like, that's, I think, what the UFC expects to happen. I think this is putting him in this featured, you know, Spot to open up the pay-per-view, I think, is a good move on their part. Like I said, being on a John Jones undercard, can't beat it for your UFC debut. And it's not that Pickett's not talented, right? It's just that sometimes, this is what I really feel like at the end of the day, the fight boils down to, in my opinion. I feel like we've seen Jamie Pickett struggle a little bit with his confidence while he's in the octagon, right? And I think that we've seen him get a little bit timid with things and start anticipating things coming back his way. DC and Rogan, I think, mentioned that on the one, uh, I forget who the fight was against, but in one of his fights, and it's true, man. It's like he'll throw his shots and he'll start getting out of the way before he's really like committed to the shot and gone through with this combo. Like He's anticipating things coming back at him and it ends up hurting him in the long run right? You got to just kind of like stand in the fire and wade through it and defend yourself and commit to your combinations and stuff like that. Move your head like, but you got to, anytime you start like reacting early or prematurely to something that might happen, that's when your opponent starts timing things and setting things up, etc. right? So we've seen Jamie Pickett struggle in situations like that. And I think he, I don't want to call it self-doubt. I don't know if that's what it is, but definitely like confidence We've seen it waver a little bit in the octagon, I would say. Um, I think he's very skilled. He has a really good uh, teep kick that he throws out a lot. He's got good hands, right, when he decides to throw them. It's just like he has to commit to his strikes and then commit to the head movement and his exits and stuff. He can't be, he can't be exiting his combos prematurely. And again, like I said, the thing I think it boils down to is that we haven't seen Bo Nickel lack any confidence on the feet, on the ground, at any point during his MMA career. And you got to realize, man, he's a three-time NCAA Division I national champion. And throughout his years at Penn State, he kept moving up weight classes and achieving gold there, right? I mean, he is one of the best wrestlers in Penn State history, I think, right? I think he's probably up there with with the greats like probably like who like david taylor and stuff like i think i actually i think david taylor beat him a couple times i might have that mixed up but i think in like the olympic trials or some shit anyway i don't know but anyway one of the best college wrestlers of all time definitely one of the best penn state alums of all time and my point is just that he has been in these massive pressure cooker moments throughout his collegiate career and now he's on the biggest stage in you know, MMA, the UFC. And I just don't think it's going to be a big deal to him. I think he's going to come out confident and I think he's going to be able to implement his game plan. And I think that'll be the difference. I think when you're confident, you execute your game plan with confidence, right? And it's the Otis is kind of on the other person to break your confidence. Like Jamie Pickett, his job in this fight, his responsibility is to break that confidence of Bo Nickel. Stick him with a fucking jab early. Hit him with something that makes him respect your space and makes him not want to come in on those shots, right? You got to be the one that comes out and like asserts yourself. If you don't and you let Nickel start rolling, the odds that you're able to recover are very low. I think that if we don't see Pickett make some sort of statement in the first round that makes Nickel just like rethink 
entering his space just a little bit, I think you're going to see Nickel run through him. But if Pickett can come out and do that, if he can establish that, if he can start working the body, keep his space, fend off the takedown, circle his back off the cage, keep in the center, right? Keep all these different things in mind. Maybe he has a chance. But like I said, you got to stick him with something that makes him respect you early on because you're not going to win the grappling transitions. You don't want to end up with your back on the cage, right? What you have to do is you have to hit him with something and you have to make him timid to want to come in and take those shots. Or... Even if he gets desperate with them, at least they're telegraphed and maybe you can fend them off, disengage, and get back to space, right? What you don't want happening is Nickel being the one to storm forward, put hands in your face and get your hands moving up, and then he level changes and gets to the hips. If that happens, good luck. Good luck because the kid's really good on the ground and the odds of you, I think, getting back up, you might. You might be able to work yourself back up and wall walk like up the cage and stuff, right? And return to your feet, but then you'll probably get Matt returned. He's going to be chaining things together on a level that I don't think Jamie Pickett's ever seen. So again, Jamie Pickett has to establish himself early. I think Nickel wins this fight though. Like I said, we've just seen, we've just seen, I haven't really seen a reason to doubt him yet, right? And I think Pickett is a favorable matchup. I think Pickett is a little bit loose with his technique in some areas, right? Could tighten things up and, uh, I think Nickel's going to kind of have all that shit down, especially in the grappling department because of his strong wrestling background. So I got Nickel. I'm probably going to, he's like, I think he's a massive favorite, like minus 800, maybe, maybe more. But I think if you bet on him to win by TKO, uh, I think it's like plus 135. And I think that that is actually a good bet in this fight because I think the, Odds are that it's going to be really hard for Nickel. Maybe not really hard, but I think Pickett just has enough MMA experience that he's going to be able to like fend off some of the submissions potentially. Arm triangles could be a problem shit because any time somebody's on top of you with good top pressure, if he's able to slice into mount against Pickett, that could be a problem. But I could also just see Nickel continuously taking him down, ground and pound, and just beating him up uh, and picking up the victory that way. So. I'm going to bet on Nickel personally to win by TKO, right? Um, I'm not telling you guys to do that, but I think there's a little bit of value in that. There's probably value in Nickel winning this fight by submission as well. I don't know what the odds are, but I kind of like him to just kind of wear. Pickett's got 21 fights to his name, man. That's 21 MMA fights. He's still seen some things. So I think, you know, there might be good odds that he defends some of the submissions, but once Nickel gets on top, I think he has a good avenue to like ground and pound, but... I don't know. Either way, if you bet on submission or KO, whatever you like, it's way better than betting on the nickel money line. Okay, let's move on. Jalen Turner versus Matash Gamra at 155 pounds. In my opinion, this is the most intriguing matchup on the entire card. Turner's a pretty big underdog going into this matchup. I think he was around plus 190. I could be off last time I looked. And man, Matash Gamra is a high-level grappler, and you got to see that in the fight against Armand Sarukian. You got to see that in the fight against Benil Dariush. I mean, granted, Dariush came out on the other end of those transitions, but there were some high, high-level grappling exchanges going on there, right? So, Gamera obviously has the wrestling advantage, and I think that's why he's a favorite coming into this fight. Also, a little bit more experience against high-level competition. You know, I know we've seen Turner knock out Rydell, but that's still not quite on the level of Dariush or even maybe not even Sarukian, you know? So, Jalen Turner, like, super long for the weight class. I believe he's six foot three, right? And his the thing about Turner, man, is that his... 
his ground game has come a really long way. And what he's kind of figured out how to do is put it all together, right? He's always been a really gifted striker, has really good hands, right? Obviously, he's very long and he knows how to hold his range. But he does at times let people start entering in like we saw against Jamie Malarkey. Like Malarkey was able to get to the takedown. And I think when you look at stuff like that, it gives you a little bit of hesitation against Gamrot, right? Because Gamrot's probably going to be able to close that distance. He likes to shoot for that low single leg. He's good at locking up like he's just really good as you start to chain things too, right? For Turner, I think it's very important for him to establish the jab. His right hand is fucking sharp. It's like a fucking piston and it's right down the pipe, right? He has a lot of power behind it. But if he can get his jab going, it'll open up that right hand. He needs to hold Gamera. This is kind of, I think, the same story as what Pickett needs to do to Bo Nickel. But I think Jalen Turner has a better chance to do it against Gamera. Uh, Jalen Turner needs to hold the range and establish it. He has to make Gamera weary of entering into that space to ever take the shots. The problem with Gamera is that he will like enter and shoot from kind of far away, like I said, because he likes snatching up low singles and then chaining things from there. So Turner has to be ready to defend things like that. But the key for him, man, is again, if you get into those situations, you need to keep your back off. First, you need to be circling, right? You need to keep your back off the cage and you need to immediately work to defend and disengage. And one of the things that we've seen, like I was kind of alluding to earlier and got off track, Turner has improved his ground game a lot, but he's learned to like set everything up together and do it with his hands first. So when he choked out Rydell, yeah, he hit him with a guillotine, but he hurt him on the feet first and then immediately got his ground game going. And we've seen other examples of that in his fights lately, right? I think he's on a five-fight winning streak right now. Let me double check. I have his thing pulled up. Yeah, five-fight win streak right now. All of them finishes. None of his fights, none of his last five fights have gotten out of the second round. And his last loss was to Matt Frivola. And his other loss in the UFC was to Vicente Luque in his UFC debut. I mean, come on. That was at 172. He's looked fucking amazing ever since dropping down to 155. He's finishing guys. He's super dangerous. He's got a really long frame. I think that it's worth throwing some money on Jalen Turner this weekend. And I could see this being one of those fights where you expect the wrestler to win. But because Turner's striking is so sharp and because Gamrot does hang out like kind of on the outside before he works his way in a lot and he uses a lot of movement, I could see Turner stinging him and being able to read him coming in and be able to sting him a little bit further away than Gamrot's used to feeling in a lot of his previous fights. I mean, think about the size of his previous opponents, right? Like Benil Dariush and think about, you know, fucking uh, uh, Sarukian. Neither of them have the range or the distance with their striking that Jalen Turner does. And I think Jalen Turner is going to be able to hit Gamrot. And I think, again, when you can start, I think his odds of doing it, like I said, are much better than like Jamie Pickett's. And I think if you can start stinging a guy, here's the thing about Turner too. Because his strikes are so efficient and because he does come, they're powerful. They hurt guys, right? So when he starts stinging you with thing, it, hurt, it hurts you too. And then that puts you on the defensive. If Jalen Turner can manage the distance and always be wary of the shot, fend it off, disengage and get back to center, right? If he starts off controlling the striking exchanges, which he has a good chance to do, I think you could see him be victorious in this fight. I think his stripe, striking is sharp enough that he could put Gamrod away, right? 
I'm personally, I think Jalen Turner wins this fight, man. I don't know why. I just have a feeling. I think that if Gamrock closes the distance and he find way, he finds ways to work to the inside like Malarkey did against Turner, then, hey, he's going to win the fight. He's going to be able to take him down. He's going to be able to chain things together. It's going to be very hard, I think, for Jalen Turner to keep up with those transitions if he is able to get inside. But I can see Turner being able to survive on the ground right? When it does go there and you always reset on the feet. I just think there's a chance that Turner establishes his range, hits Gamrot with some things that hurt him and fuck with the timing on his takedown entries. And I could see him finishing Gamrot in this fight, man. I think fucking Turner's really good. I think he's turned a corner in his career and man, he has never looked as good as he did against Brad Rydell. So Fuck, I got I got Jalen Turner in this fight, believe it or not, as the underdog. I think that I think he could go out and win this fight. Again, great matchup. Not wouldn't be surprised at all if Gamrot does pull it off, but I think I think Turner pulls it. I think he takes the win. Next fight, guys, is super interesting too. This is a great matchup that again has kind of been bumped around a little bit. But Jeff Neal versus Shavkat Rachmanov at 170 pounds. Rachmanov is a fucking animal. And a very highly touted prospect. I would say like him and Shemaev are probably two of the more promising prospects right now at 170 pounds. But this fight against Jeff Neal is a big fucking challenge. And I know that you you do the MMA math, right? And you look at Rachmanov and the way that he dominated Magny in those grappling transitions. And you look at Neal kind of losing to Magny in those transitions. But Neal was also like really weirdly being offensive in those grappling exchanges when he fought Magni. So I think it tired him out more than he expected it to. And it took a lot off of his like fight style and how he would normally fight. Right. So I think that he got like caught up in that and it tired him out. But when you're approaching it from a defensive mindset, it's a little bit different, right? So I think that that factor, that MMA math, doesn't exactly carry over for this fight in particular. I know that Rachmanov dominated Magni in those situations, like took him down, joked him out, all that shit, right? And you could assume that if it gets into those spots, that Neil is probably going to be at a disadvantage. I think he's probably at a disadvantage in the striking situation, or in the grappling situations. But... We have seen Neil defend takedowns nicely, right? It's just like, I just think he chose a bad path toward victory in this fight against Neil Magny. I don't think that's his style. If Neil can stick to his style, man, he is a very talented striker. And it's going to be interesting to see how Shavkat deals with a southpaw that's as talented as Jeff Neal. Because sometimes you will see... That Shavkat, like, in some of his exchanges, drops his hands just a little bit. And I think Neil's going to be able to make him pay for that because he's so technical and so precise with the strikes. And he also covers a lot of distance with the strikes in his left hand, right? So if your hands are down, even if you're fading back, Neil is good at stringing together combinations and finding home a lot of the time. This could be a problem on the feet for Rachmanov. I think overall, Rachmanov, here's the thing, though. We've seen Neil struggle to defend kicks in the past, like some leg kicks and stuff, and Rachmanov has really good kicks. He's really good on the feet. He's really composed. He has really good footwork. But I just think that Neil is going to have a power advantage. I think he's going to be a little bit faster. And I think that he's going to be able to crack Rachmanov with some shots that could hurt him. But 
all in all, man, I, I'm again. This is a fight where there's a lot of underdogs I like betting on on this fight, right? Like I like betting on Turner. I'm betting on Neil, no doubt. I think the odds are t he's like plus three hundred or some shit, and Neil is a talented fighter. And again, this if he if Shavkat might win the striking exchanges, he might be that good. But if Neil can start tagging you with stuff, his takedown defense is high level. He's seen high level competition. He just dealt with Vicente Luque, right? He's seen this. Rachmanov hasn't seen a Luke yet, I don't think. And Jeff Neal is a bad motherfucker, and he's super precise with the strikes. Shavkat might win. Shavkat might be better on the feet. We're not going to know until things play out on Saturday, right? He might be better. But I got to see that first, I feel like. I feel like we've seen him do really well on the feet against guys like, Oliver, like Alex Oliveira, Cowboy, right? Like, we've seen him do well in these different scenarios against different guys, but not against Jeff fucking Neal. If he can go out and dominate Jeff Neal, I know that Jeff Neal is like a big underdog in this, but I still think it's a huge deal. I still think this is a massive win for Rachmanov if he pulls it off this weekend. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Jeff Neal fan, if you guys can't tell. Like, but I'm picking Rachmanov to win this fight. I think that he, like I said, my money's on Neal. I just think the odds are there. I think he's way too big of an underdog. And I think this is a winnable fight for Jeff Neal. But for Shavka, I do like how well-rounded he is on the feet. I like how composed he is. You'll see him throw spinning techniques. He has really good control over his footwork. Um, yeah, I think that Rachmanov overall just has a little bit more tools in the toolbox when you compound the grappling on top of his striking ability. And, man, I think Rachmanov probably goes out and gets it done and does probably force Neil's back against the cage and get him into situations where he's constantly working and then having to like fight from behind on the feet, if that makes sense. So like he might be able to disengage, but I can see Rachmanov either getting him to the ground and making things really annoying or holding him up against the cage for prolonged periods of time and kind of negating it until he gets his way, right? So I just think Rachmanov has a few more options to win. But if Neil can come out, be aggressive, start establishing things in the center of the cage and hurting Rachmanov, man, this could be a totally different fight. And I can, this is a winnable fight for Neil, but I just think, again, Rachmanov has a little bit too much going on. So I think I'm going with him. All right. So Valentina Shevchenko versus Alexa Grasso for the women's flyweight title, 125-pound title, right? And before we break this down, I kind of want to talk about the state of the women's flyweight division right now because Tatiana Suarez just fought this past weekend. And again, look dominant against Montana De La Rosa, right? And I know, like, I, I don't, this isn't shit talking on De La Rosa, but the UFC probably viewed that as like a warm up fight to get her back on track, right? And now you've got this kind of interesting spot where you've got Aaron Blanchfield, who just beat Andrade. She's ranked number three now, I believe. I think she's still her spot. Only 23 years old. Blanchfield kind of represents our next wave and generation of MMA. By the time she starts maturing in the next like six or seven years as a martial artist, she's going to be really high level. And I think she represents the first of that new crop that's kind of be coming up behind her a little bit. But only 23 years old and just beat Andrade the way she did. Man, you got to be feeling good about her, her, her UFC career, like her future career projection, right? She's, I think she's on track to be a world champion at some point. Whether that's right now, I don't know. But... You've got Manon Foyo, Fioy, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Manon Foyo, whatever, she's up top. Um, Valentina's obviously the champion. Alexa Grasso's fighting this weekend. You just saw uh, Tyla Santos give Valentina some problems in the most recent fight. So you've got this interesting mix of talent up top where 
you saw Santos kind of start to expose some cracks in the game of Valentina, right? Like able to take her back in some of those grappling transitions, win those in spots where Valentina normally dominates. So we have people, Blanchfield, like I said, is our like the next wave. And I don't know if she's, I don't know how she does against a Grasso. I, I mean, Andrade is world-class, man. She just beat it. There's nothing else you can say. Andrade is world-class. But, like, it's just interesting because normally what happens in the, like, in divisions like this, especially with women, I feel this way all the time, especially with, like, Valentina's title defenses, there is, like, a lack of really, of, like, top-tier, top-five, top-ten talent, right? So... The people that she gets fed, sometimes you get a prospect that comes through and they get thrown into the deep end of that pool a little bit too soon for a girl. There's no like, actually I take that back. Like a lot of the times your top three, top five is really well developed, but you don't have a strong middle class, right? So when you have somebody who's really promising, like say a Macy Barber or like somebody like that who starts coming through, they get thrown to really talented opponents sometimes too early. Like, I, I mean, she's a bad example because she's actually been doing pretty well and like just won her fight against, I think, Montana, right? Like, I don't know. My point is just it feels like the challengers for Valentina are never really worthy of fighting her because, like, again, she's run through all the people at the top and now all you can do is throw in opponents from, like, that kind of, like, middle-class area who you know aren't ready yet and sometimes that means young opponents get fed in too early to fight higher end talent because there's just nobody to fill that gap for them to kind of get a natural a career progression like the men's. Like my, my point is just like, I feel like I'm like convoluting this a little bit. All right. So in the men's division, one through 25 at 155 pounds are all going to be, that's like all world-class talent in my opinion. Like not like maybe not world championship caliber obviously but like you are going to get a lot of really good fights matching people up who are outside of the top 15 even outside of the top 10 you're going to get good fights when you stop putting rankings next to your names sometimes that happens in the women's divisions but not that often so my point is people come in who are really talented or they have a lot of hope for and they blitz through two or three girls in the beginning now you have nobody in that like 20 to like 12, 10 range that you can slowly progress them against because none of those matchups are interesting for them and you know they're going to dominate them, right? So there's kind of this natural tendency to start pushing them towards the more talented end of the pool against more recognizable names, right? To start building their brand and building their name up. And also you just don't have a large selection of women to fill that middle class gap. So you get people who have kind of like, in my opinion, unnatural career progressions, whereas at 155, unless you're skyrocketing through everybody and blitzing them, you get a career path more like Raphael Fazeev, right? Where you slowly get tested more and more and more against more and more talented opponents before making the dive into the deep end of the pool. Whereas with women, sometimes you're forced to, like, you could, you could honestly argue that that's just what happened to Blanchfield over the like over a couple weekends ago and she just fought through it and won and came out on the other end of it. She got thrown into the deep end against Andrade who took the fight on short notice, granted. But still, that's a hard fight and Andrade was tagging her early on with shots. So it just makes you think about like, well, my point with this whole thing was, just to come back, you're starting to see though that the flyweight division has 
a new sort of representation, representative rather, in Aaron Blanchfield for the next crop coming up. And you do have some women in the flyweight division who are starting to make a buzz and are starting to like fill in those five and ten rules, like five, or I'm sorry, those like ten through one spots, right? Like Tatiana Suarez, like Manone, like fucking Alexa Grasso, who's challenging for the title. You'll start to getting a more of a mix of like younger talent, people who are in their like 29, 30, right? Early 30s. So I think that the women's flyweight division is finally in a spot now where it's not there yet, but it is starting to catch up with the men's divisions in terms of talent, right? It hasn't been around as long. Women's MMA hasn't been featured on the world scene in the UFC for as long as men's, obviously. So it's good to see that we're finally getting some really talented girls up at the top that feel like Tatiana Suarez feels like she could challenge for a title, right? Alexa Grasso is challenging for the title, big underdog this weekend, but again, really talented boxer. She's like, you're starting to get those people where you start having conversations around it maybe happening, right? So it's starting to happen and the transition for women that women's MMA is starting to happen where you're seeing it get more and more skilled. Anyway, that ends my rant on all that, but let's break down this fight here. Valentina Shevchenko versus Grasso. Grasso is obviously a very gifted boxer, really smooth with her hands, really good with her counters, really solid with her footwork, not out of position very often. Um, I think that this fight could end up, we could end up seeing a lot of waiting going on because Alexa Grasso does like to counter and Valentina is very content to not throw a lot of strikes and kind of pick her openings and kind of blitz you with some like combinations and kicks and stuff, right? It, she'll like kind of sit there and bounce up and down and she's like kind of standing in place waiting for her timing. And if Grasso's patient too, we could see a lot of like feeling out, especially early on in the fight. And I could see this being a fight where, like, okay, that we have seen Grosso do really well on the ground lately. I think she's much improved there. But there's something about, like, and, I mean, hey, Tyler Santos had her success. But there's something about the way when, like, Valentina holds people and throws people. Usually when she gets them on the ground, she's able to control them. And I have a feeling that if she can get a hold of Alexa Grosso and close off that space, right, that she's going to be able to control things there and probably take Grosso down. But... I think the question is, can Grosso start to like, I think the key for Grosso is that she has to draw reactions out of Valentina. Like I said, they're both going to be looking to counter and I could see this being kind of like a sleepy fight at points. But if Grosso chooses to like start engaging and getting her hands going, right, just set up shots to draw counters out of counters out of Valentina and then get her own shots firing back, we could see Grosso start having some success on the feet. But when they start playing that patience game like that, if they start settling into a fight where they're both kind of like waiting on each other, Valentina is an expert at re making her reads, even if it's a very small window of opportunity, and taking that. And, bl and she blitzes and her strikes are coming very fast. So she like scores points with them in the judges' minds, right? So if Grosso, I think Grosso, if she wants to win, has to fight a little bit aggressive has to be willing to crowd that space of Valentina, get her hands going, and like I said, draw things out of Valentina so that she can counter herself. If she's not willing to stand in the pocket and trade with Valentina a little bit, I think it's going to be a hard fight for Grasso because like I said, if she's waiting on Valentina, Valentina's going to, she's good at playing that patience game and waiting herself. She'll time her shots. She'll look for opportunities. She'll close the distance off. She'll land a timely takedown. She will do whatever it takes to have the big moment and win the round. 
right? That's why she's a world champion. She will, like, do what it takes to win. So for Grosso, I think Grosso kind of has to take the fight to Valentina, right? Like I said, get in her face. If she's covering up, boom, hit her with shots. Just, like, be dirty boxing or force some of those exchanges. It's got to be volume and uh, trying to set things up and force Valentina to do some things she doesn't want to do. If you let Valentina just sit and wait, I think that your opportunities to counter are going to be few and far between. Like I said, Valentina will make a read, blitz in, hit her stuff, and then get out right away and disengage. And it gets hard for you to develop any sort of timing because she's not giving you a lot of looks. Whereas if you get in her face and start getting your hands going and force things out of her, now you can start making reads, right? I could be totally off in what she does. But my point is just that you enter the pocket wading into that fire a little bit, and you start getting your hands going with a plan in your mind to be defensive. And when you see the shots start coming back, you're rolling, you're moving, you're seeing what she's doing, and then you start timing your counters, right? If you're just waiting on Valentina, I think she dominates that, right? Who knows? Valentina might go out and put it on her and blitz her. And like I said, she might take her down, get her on the ground, smother her. But I think that we've seen some pretty good... I think the grappling transitions on the ground could be interesting more interesting than people are thinking and i think grasso might be able to get back to her feet at times i do think that shevchenko is the one more likely to take the fight to the ground but yeah um fuck i'm taking valentina man like i said i just think that it kind of will by the nature of this when alexa is standing across from shevchenko in her first world title fight maybe she rises to the moment i don't know but just given the fact that valentina's defended seven straight times or whatever it is and given the fact that she is one of the most, you know, she is arguably the best female mixed martial artist of all time, right? Up there with Amanda Nunes. It's hard not, it's hard not to take her in this fight. And you got to think that when Alexa Grasso sees her, something changes a little bit there. And I think that that kind of like patience thing that, to, to, I think that you'll see Grasso be a little timid. And when you're a little timid, Valentina capitalizes, so... I'm going Valentina, but Grasso could get it done. I just think Grasso has to take the fight to Valentina. If that happens, hey, maybe we have a new world champion Saturday night. We'll see. We'll see. That's, that's how I see it going. But I'm staying away from the betting lines in that one. They're too outrageous. Uh, not that you guys should be taking my betting advice, but I'm just letting you know, like, kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> not that it'll be, not, again, not that, you, not that it'll be successful and not that you should listen to it, but uh, just my opinion. Okay. Finally, guys, the main event, the return of John Jones at heavyweight for the vacant title against Cyril Gaon. John Jones has teased going up to heavyweight for years now, and we're finally getting to see it. And actually, you know, you would think it would be ripped and putting on all this muscle. And I don't know if the picture I saw was fake. I think it's real. But it, it's him at heavyweight, and it's his picture, like, with the shirt off that the UFC did. And he looks kind of chubby, right? But when you are carrying around a lot of muscle at heavyweight, it's a lot to carry. And it fatigues quickly. So it almost would make more sense for John to just get strong as he let his body kind of naturally put on weight and didn't stack himself so full of muscle. I mean, look at DC. You know what I mean? Like it's, there is something to that type of build and there is something to being built like a Francis or a Ciro gone that I think will fatigue you more as the fight carries on because you carry so much muscle. Whereas John has just like kind of always been a long, uh, you know, lanky framed like he's not gonna like he's a his upper body is like he's strong like you can tell by looking at him that he's like well built i'm not saying that he's just not a fucking nganu where he's shredded right 
I think his body transformation to transition to heavyweight is actually a more intelligent one. And also the thing about John Jones, like the difference between John and Ciro in this fight, Ciro fights light on his feet, man. Like he bounces around a lot and John Jones throughout his entire career has always fought much more flat-footed and he kind of has a lower slumbering pace. I don't want to say slumbering, like he's always also, if you watch fucking John, he always dictates the footwork. Like he is always the one moving forward and even when you're firing offense at him, this is what I was talking about with Pickett earlier. When you throw things at John, John stands in the fucking fire. Like he stands there and he he responds defensively and like responsibly and he always watches things coming at him. He's never anticipating movements. His hands are always up and he's always reacting to what he sees. It's not that John doesn't get hit, but John is willing to stand in the fire and remain defensive there and count on his skills. You never see, you very rarely see John panic. You very rarely see him get in moments where he's like, you know, it's just not, he's always in control of himself. And he's always in control of that striking range. And like I said, he's always staring things down. That could be dangerous against a guy like Ciro Gon, who's going to have real heavyweight power. And I know that Gon maybe isn't like your one-punch knockout guy necessarily, but he can fucking hit hard. And if he can continuously tag John, it could wear on John. He's never eaten shots like... John's never eaten shots like that at light heavyweight, right? So if Gon's able to continuously touch him with things, it's going to hurt. I think the interesting thing in this is going to be the cardio. And like I said, Gon's a guy who bounces around a lot. How do you do over five rounds when John is... Because like I said, John moves a little bit slowly, a little bit more flat-footed. But he's always in control of the footwork. He's never chasing you. He's always angling, right? Like he's always angling in order to hunt you down and pin you off or like cut you off against the cage. He's always forcing you to like... He just always controls the fight. And I wonder, with Cyril gone bouncing around so much, when John just takes that steady stance and he's just constantly walking you down, right? And he's not expending a lot of energy. He's not exactly bouncing around a lot. And when you're throwing strikes at John and he always has his hands up and he's always defensively responsible. You know, it's not that John doesn't get hit. It's that John just usually does the right things defensively. That's how I feel. I feel that John's a great offensive fighter too, obviously. Obviously, he's a bad motherfucker and he's super creative and he throws some like, he's always throwing like flying knees and shit or like, like he did against Anthony Smith, always coming up with some wild shit in the octagon. His elbows are nasty, but you see him fight at a very consistent pace, right? And I think that that's going to be the difference maker in this fight against Gon. I think that it's John fucking Jones and I got a hard time betting against him or picking against him. I think he comes back well prepared. I think he took his time doing everything right, getting up to heavyweight. And I just think that, you know, everybody's talking too about the fact that Ngannou took gone down so many times. And that is true. And Ngannou is not a great wrestler. But it could still be a challenge for John Jones to just straight up take gone down. I think John's going to have to like press this fight back against the cage. Again, control the footwork. Not let gone start pushing him backwards and stabbing him with big shots. Again, I think John sets a slow, consistent pace, backs gone up against the cage, hits him with some strikes, touches him with those kicks, and because he's fighting at a slower pace and not bouncing around as much as gone, it starts to aid him. And in rounds two, three, four, we start seeing John now effectively able to work gone up against the cage slowly, start landing those elbows that he throws up against the cage, those knees, 
And I think he'll be the one. I think you're just going to see a very patient approach from John. I think he's going to slow the fight down. Gon ends up fighting at his pace. And like I said, John dictates things. And the longer the fight goes, the more that he's able to impose his will and start pinning Gon up against the cage. And then maybe the takedowns come into play, right? But I think that people, I think Gon, Gon could win. Gon had, like I said, that heavyweight power, his speed, I think he has a speed advantage over John. His in and out ability is going to be really good. I just think he moves a lot. And I think John fights at a slow and steady pace. And I think it's going to, I think it plays into his favor in this fight. I think he's going to slowly just march Gon down and impose his will over time. Get creative up against the cage with a lot of strikes there in the clinch. If the takedowns come, they come. But I think you see John just walk gone down, hit him with his kicks, hit him with the strikes, and slowly push him backwards. And as the footwork starts to play more in favor of John, he'll become more and more dominant in other departments. That's how I see it playing out. My money's on John Jones, no doubt. Never, I fucking never bet. I'm never betting against John. Even if he loses, I will not regret betting on John Jones. Right? He's the fucking man. Say what you want about steroid usage whatever blah blah i always feel like this if you want to talk about the goat debate there's like in terms of representative of the sport gsp is probably the goat in terms of technical proficiency and skill on display it's probably demetrius johnson in terms of being the baddest motherfucker that's ever lived all the steroid stuff aside it's probably john jones he's kind of like you know it's barry bonds-esque a little bit Right, like that asterisk next to his name because of a lot of things. And I know that he wants to dispel it and wants to claim that he's clean, but he still failed all those tests at the time. And man, I know that asterisk is there, but if you want to talk about just like the baddest motherfucker ever, it might be John Jones. So <laughs> that's how I look at the GOAT list. It's like in terms of accomplishments, and like I said, representing your sport, did John do that the best? No, but <laughs> there are 9 billion people in the world and we haven't found one that can beat him up yet. So we'll see what happens this weekend when he debuts at heavyweight and fights for the title of the baddest man on the planet. That's how we refer to UFC champions at heavyweight, right? So he has a chance to cement himself. If he wins, if he wins Saturday night, he's the GOAT. No doubt. You can, there's no more denying. There's no more denying, right? He's the greatest. He's the greatest that's ever fought. Say what you want about, I don't care. Say what you want about credentials. If you want to keep it to that and like all the, if, if you have to be perfectly clean, then obviously not. But if you're just talking again, like I said, about the baddest man that's ever lived, if he pulls it off this weekend, it's John. There's no, there's no denying. But anyway, guys, that's going to wrap this up. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. Much appreciated. Uh, if you enjoyed, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button. Uh, also guys, I'm terrible about like promoting this stuff and a, I'm terrible about social media in general. I have like a legitimate goal to get better at it. Right. But on uh, Instagram, Go follow me over there. I'm going to try to post more clips and stuff. My, like just in general, I'll try to start posting more over there. But the username is uh, DLO underscore MMA underscore show. And then I think it's the same thing on Twitter. Uh, I'll put a link down here somewhere in the corner of the screen so you guys can see it. But anyway, guys, again, that's going to wrap this one up. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the fights on Saturday. Bye-bye.